This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. I am reading the revised and expanded edition dedicated to P.T. Bauer, Ford by Gary North. Chapter 3. The Exodus as a Liberation Movement. As we have seen, Ronald Sider regards slavery as always a sin. In terms of this, he naturally feels that all slaves should always be liberated. A recurring theme in his writings is that the biblical account of the Exodus of Israel provides a divinely inspired precedent for liberating the oppressed peoples of the world through political action. In other words, at pivotal points of Revelation history, God worked to free slaves. Since this indicates God's concern for the oppressed of the world, we too should work for their liberation from unjust economic and social structures etc., etc. It is crucial to examine carefully Sider's principle of interpretation here. Summing up the Exodus account, he says that God acted to free a poor, oppressed people. He acted to end economic oppression and bring freedom to slaves. The liberation of a poor, oppressed people was right at the heart of God's design. But this is a serious misreading of the biblical record. Consider how God described what he was doing. And the Lord said, I I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to, to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus 3, 7, and 8. What's the difference? Isn't God saying the same thing, Sider says? Not at all. God saw the affliction of his people, not just a people, as Sider rephrases it. God was not liberating slaves in the abstract. He was not simply bringing freedom to slaves in general. He was taking his people to the land which he had promised to their fathers. As Moses pointed out to the Israelites, the exodus occurred because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Israel was a holy, that is, separate, distinct people to the Lord, a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And for this reason, they were redeemed. Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. Israel was unique. God's redemption of them cannot be classified with liberation movements in general. They were his people who cried out to him. The exodus was not freeing of slaves in the abstract, but a special redemptive covenantal event in fulfillment of God's oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It cannot be generalized. It is not an umbrella which we can place over every revolutionary liberation movement 
which may exist anywhere in the world. Of course, there is the principle here that God will bring socio-economic freedom to his people who call upon his name. As we have seen, spiritual liberty in Christ flows out into every area of life. But we cannot use the Exodus as a precedent for supporting so-called liberation movements in general. To illustrate, let us apply Sider's principle of abstract, generalized interpretation to other aspects of the Exodus. When God freed Israel, he struck dead the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. Exodus 12, 29, and 30. Thus, we can say that at this pivotal point in Revelation history, God showed that he was working to slay firstborn children. Let us work to implement this principle in our modern, ungodly society which idolizes its offspring. Or, when God liberated his people, bringing them into a land occupied by various heathen cultures, he commanded them to kill every man, woman, and child in the cities. Deuteronomy 20, 16-18 Surely this reflects a central, fervent concern of our Lord. The annihilation of unbelievers is right at the heart of his design and history. We should organize a society, evangelicals for genocidal action, which would begin immediately to study, pray, and gather munitions. Start in your own community, simply surround an unbelieving neighbor's property, blast him and his children into eternity, and occupy his house for a concrete act of biblical commitment. Obviously, these examples are absurd. The destruction of Egyptian firstborn and the slaughter of Canaanites were unique events which cannot be generalized. And the same is true of the Exodus. It was not simply a liberation of oppressed slaves. It was the liberation of God's people who were in covenant with him. Abstraction here is distortion. Ronald Sider is not exegeting scripture. He is manipulating it. The fact that he gets away with this sort of thing in evangelical, Bible-believing circles indicates that we ourselves are in need of liberation, theological liberation. And an important distinction should be made here between two, word, two words which are similar in form but radically different in content, liberty and liberation. Liberty has historically signified self-government and freedom from undue state control, although it has also been used by socialist and anarchist as it was in the French Revolution. It speaks of a free, mature, self-reliant people able to govern themselves under God without intervention from government beyond its God-ordained boundaries. Liberation, in the sense of socialist revolution, means the destruction of liberty. Sider's social reforms necessitate stern, coercive measures by an omnipotent state controlling the lives of people at every level. Of course, this is done in the name of liberating the poor from economic injustice. But what it really means is power. 
The intellectual who agitates for statist liberation always assumes that in the worker's paradise, he will be at the top of the pyramid, providing that he is the dictator, that his property will not be liberated when the revolution comes, and that his notions of justice will be enforced on the unjust rich. He has no reason to regard tyranny as anything but freedom. Ronald Sider, with bureaucratic omniscience, knows what kind of products we really need, and the generously and generously pronounces that it's okay to make a lot of money on that needed product. But to their everlasting shame, businessmen don't seem to listen to his suggestions. They foolishly are intent on producing what people say they want rather than what experts say they need. What is required, therefore, is liberation. Liberation will apply Sider's good intentions by force at the point of a policeman's gun. Just as in the Vietnam War, it became necessary to destroy the village in order to save it. Society will achieve liberation through totalitarianism. Committed as he is to liberation from slavery, Ronald Sider is not ignorant of past attempts. One movement particularly revered by him is the abolitionist activity of the 19th century. He especially applauds the radicalism of the preacher Charles Finney, who founded Oberlin College as a haven for abolitionism and feminism. Jonathan Blanchard, an early student at Oberlin, went on to become Wheaton College's first president, and Sider mourns that Wheaton eventually declined from its original position as a hotbed of social activism. <laughs> However, it is Sider's statements on Finney and abolitionism which are of special interest. Writing in Christian Century, he claims that Charles Finney's evangelical abolitionists stood solidly in the biblical tradition in their search for justice for the poor and oppressed of their time. Expanded on this theme, he writes elsewhere, Finney was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. He led evangelistic crusades throughout the country. The filling of the Holy Spirit was central in his life and preaching. He was also one of the leading abolitionists working to end the unjust system of slavery. Church discipline was used at his church at church at Oberlin College, which he founded against anyone holding slaves. Finney and his students practiced civil disobedience to protest, to protest unjust laws. Over Christmas holidays, Finney's students went out by the scores to hold evangelistic meetings, and they preached against the sin of participating in slavery as well as personal sins. Recent study has shown that the abolitionist movement in many states of the Midwest US of the US grew directly out of these revival campaigns by Finney and his students. I dream of that kind of movement in the church today. The abolitionist movement, if was true, was it is true, a religious movement but its religion was anti-Christian humanism. Otto Scott, in his masterful study of the conspirators who financed John Brown's murderous exploits, 
shows the development of the abolitionist campaign. A description which may contain a prophecy of Sider's evangelical liberationism as well. The new religion had started with arguments against such relatively harmless sins as smoking and drinking, had then grown to crusades denouncing and forbidding even commerce with persons whose morals were held to be invidious. It had expanded into anti-slavery as the answer to every ill of humanity. And it had finally come to full flower in the belief that killing anyone, innocent or guilty, was an act of righteousness for a new morality. American abolitionism took a very different route from that of the British, who were able to eliminate colonial slavery in a lawful, peaceful manner without the shedding of blood. The British process was gradual, and over a period of years, the slaves were apprenticed and enabled to earn their own keep, while slaveholders were, were compensated for their financial loss. But the abolitionists in the United States refused to acknowledge any law but their own. Although they knew that most Southerners were not slaveholders, they agitated for chaos and revolution. As John Brown put it, if any obstacle stands in your way, you may properly break all the Decalogue in order to get rid of it. Men have always had to choose between two methods of social change, regeneration and revolution. The Christian seeks first to discipline himself to God's standard. He then publishes the gospel and attempts to peacefully implement the laws of God into the life of his culture, trusting in the Spirit of God for the success of his efforts. He knows that there is not and never will be a perfect society in this life. He knows that the kingdom of God spreads like leaven in bread, not by massive disrupting explosions, but by gradual permeation. He knows that justice, righteousness, and peace result from the outpouring of the Spirit in the hearts of men, Isaiah 32, 15-18. A nation's legal structure is therefore an indicator, not a cause, of national character. Law does not save. But the revolutionary, on the other hand, believes that a perfect society is possible and that it must be coercively imposed on men. He seeks to overthrow everything which threatens to obstruct the coming of his made-to-order millennium. God's providence is too slow, his law too confining. Society must be perfect tomorrow or be blasted to rubble. As the slogan of the French Revolution put it, liberté, equality, fraternity, or death. The abolitionists rising out of the early 19th century religious turmoil yearned for such a perfect society and were willing to slaughter innocent people in order to achieve it. The atmosphere in which abolitionism thrived was produced by such men as the creedless Unitarian crusader William Ellery Channing who called for guerrilla war at every chance. 
Channing was a major influence on young Ralph Waldo Emerson, the chief exponent of New England pantheism and transcendentalism, and a considerable warmonger as well. To many, his pacifistic nature worship seems harmless. The very mention of Emerson conjures up serene visions of gurgling brooks, sparkling dew on a new fallen leaf, and Henry David Thoreau behind bars. The soporific calm is is shattered as we read such lines as these, uttered by the venerable sage of Concord. If it costs ten years and ten to recover the general prosperity, the destruction of the South is worth so much. The benign mask dropped altogether when Emerson and Thoreau compared the terrorist John Brown, murderer and innocence of innocence, to Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> the gallows on which he was hanged became as glorious as the cross. And Charles Grandison Finney, the Billy Graham of the 19th century, was at the heart of the movement. Theologically, he was a Pelagian, a heretic. Bennett Tyler observed in 1854 that no orthodox body of Christian could receive him into their pulpit. No doubt he published works that contained rousing and startling truths, but even truth was given forth alongside as much error with which counteracted all. And now he seems to be drifting no one can tell whither. He adjusts whatever he finds in the Bible to his own preconceived metaphysical determinations instead of submitting his metaphysical musings to the test of unerring wisdom. (laughs) Finney, in his dedication to the cause of peace, became a member of the National Kansas Aid Committee and pledged his support in raising $2 million to provide arms for gangs of abolitionist thugs invading Kansas. The committee financed John Brown, who claimed to have been appointed by God as his special angel of death. These radical abolitionists have often claimed to be pacifist, but eventually came to applaud bloodshed as the only means of purging away the sin of slavery. As we have seen, there were sins associated with much of the slavery of the era. But salvation is not political, nor is Christianity revolutionary. The abolitionists were not content with the gradual legal abolition for which many in the South longed. Their concern was not with justice, but with revolution. And to say they were unruffled by the disruption it would cause is an understatement. They hoped for destruction. They rejected the biblical position on slavery, which mandated that both slaves and slave owners abide by God's law, and which encouraged slaves to gain freedom legally and responsibly. Sider claims to be a pacifist and calls for a non-violent revolution. But so did the abolitionists. Somehow revolutionaries find a way to sidestep this restriction once they discover that bloodshed is much quicker. In one of the tough, weighty questions at the back of Cry Justice, he asked, 
Is God at work in history today pulling down unjust rulers and unjust societies? If so, how? Every time some third world terrorist blows away a banker or a few school children, and we must not forget that CIDR has already called for violence. Price controls and expropriation of lands and businesses all require guns and men who are prepared to use them. Apart from the threat of violence, coercive enforcement of the regulations, no landowner or businessman will relinquish his property. That is the dilemma of all peaceful revolutionaries. Eventually, they pick up their bazookas and solve the problem. Sider's stated goals, his deliberate and repeated identification of himself with violent revolutionaries of the past, and the fact that his Jubilee Fund has financed modern terrorists should be enough to warn us of what lies ahead. He may personally eschew the use of arms to bring about the revolution, but bloodshed or the threat of it is a necessary component of statism. Wherever Sider's principles are effected, he might as well be pulling the trigger himself. In the name of liberation, he is calling for class warfare. The Exodus provided the Israelites with both liberty and law. Sider's liberationist Exodus is merely lawlessness and leads directly back to slavery. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.